Issues Etc. is listener-supported. We rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Now, if you appreciate Issues Etc., please consider making a tax-deductible gift today. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Issues Etc., Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. And thanks for your support. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 that is difficult to swallow. First of all, it's way over the top, or at least at first it appears to be way over the top, about a man who owes a debt that is almost incalculable in its size. Then that debt is forgiven. Then he turns around and refuses to forgive someone who owes him, well, still a lot of money if we're doing our calculations correct. And it's all in answer to a question asked by Peter of Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? Is seven times sufficient? Jesus says, well, 70 times seven. And then when he launches into the parable, he says, well, even more than that. In fact, every single time. Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, the gospel reading, Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Joining us to do so, Pastor David Peterson. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Godestinks, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Good to be here. Before we get into the particulars of this gospel reading in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, in essence, gives Peter a really hard answer when Peter says, when can I kind of exempt myself from forgiving my brother? And it sounds like Jesus says, never, and it's going to be much more difficult than you think it is, Peter. Why does he present it this way? In some sense, what Jesus is doing is he's establishing the principle, the overarching reality is that we are people who live by forgiveness, we live in the forgiveness of sins, and that flows through us, from us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he doesn't really give—I agree with you, it is hard, and he is establishing this ideal that is, humanly speaking, sort of impossible, but it's very parallel to the command to not judge and also the command to not take oaths and to call no man father. So these are things that Jesus says without any kind of caveats or qualifications, and that's because they're overarching realities that define Christianity. And then in some sense, we're left to kind of work out the details and the ethics of it ourselves. And he doesn't want to let Peter off the hook. Frankly, he wants Peter to be chastised and to recognize that If you are a forgiven sinner, you will live in the forgiveness of sins, and that will extend to other people, and there is no limit, and no sense in which you've done your duty, you've done enough, you don't need to do any more. So it it is hard in some sense, because we're sinners, and we think we are owed things and so forth, but I would say the reason Jesus speaks this way is because this is the most essential sort of thing. it's, it's It's not unlike saying you know, that a man is supposed to love his wife even as Christ loves the church and lay down his life for her, 
right? I mean, this is an extreme, outrageous, in some sense, standard that Jesus establishes for the life of the church. One other thought there before we go on, and that is, it occurs to me, listening to you, that we really don't do this teaching any favors when we present the forgiveness that God has for us as kind of a, ah, that's all right, don't worry about it, because that's certainly not how it's presented in this parable. No, that's right. I mean, this there is a costly reality, and it's not because it's... I mean, there's a generosity of God that's beyond our imagination that makes it can make it seem to us as though it's no big deal for him. Well, of course, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. It doesn't really cost him anything. But it's presented very much as though it costs him something. I mean, the life of his son, and he does this willingly and perfectly. So that, again, kind of is difficult for us to comprehend or understand because we're not like that. So take us into Matthew 18 and Peter's question to Jesus. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then... His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So that's the reading. This is Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Earlier in Matthew 18, remember, that Jesus has made it very clear that his disciples are going to struggle with sin on this side of glory and that they must resist it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So we know there's going to be a problem in, uh, in the kingdom that Christians are going to sin and they're going to sin against one another. And then a little bit further in Matthew 18, still before our pericope, Jesus has established the process for restoring and forgiving erring brothers. You know, go and tell it to the church and all that stuff, promising that when sins are loosed from sinners in the church, they're loosed in heaven. So he establishes this means to restore fellowship and for Christians, the process in a sense for Christians to forgive one another. And then this is what Peter's responding to. So when Peter comes up with this question, it's in the immediate context of being told, this is how you're going to restore one another. So he wants to know, well, how much do I have to put up with, right? How many times? And he's asking really for some very practical advice, right? How are we going to handle somebody who's a repeat offender? I mean, up to seven times, how generous are we? But Peter does not get a practical response. He gets really, in essence, he's just told, you should forgive 
sinners as often as they repent without number. Now, I, I'll have to admit that Greek numbers confuse me because they don't operate. The way they present their numbers is different than us. They don't use, you know, Roman num- or uh, what do we call it? Arabic r- uh, numerals and so forth. But so in any case, it looks to me like this should be translated as the King James and the New King James has it as 70 times 7, not 77. 70 times 7 would be a more literal translation, and I think it fits the context better. But either way, 7 times 70, 490, or 77 is not meant to be in any way a literal counting, of course. What Jesus wants is for us to keep on forgiving, even as we are forgiven, and there, there, there's no end to it. The point is, this is a perfect number, and you're not supposed to be keeping track. And then, the parable is meant to illustrate this precise reality. That's why the first word in verse 23 is, therefore. So what this parable is set up exactly with this question. Jesus is saying, because of this, because the kingdom of heaven consists in forgiving one another as we are forgiven, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished to settle accounts by forgiving enormous debts. So it's a kingdom that is established and maintained by the king's ongoing ridiculous extravagant forgiveness. You cannot be a citizen of this kingdom or a servant of this king without forgiveness. That's, that's the only way you can be in this kingdom. And those who are not shaped by this forgiveness, whose hearts and lives are not changed by it, are not truly his servants or his citizens, and they're going to be handed over to the devil. So, I mean, this is a pretty harsh thing. Not only do you have to forgive forever, right, without end, but also if you don't, you're not my disciple, Peter, and you're going to hell. Pastor David Peterson is our guest, departmental editor of Goddess Needs, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. We'll go a little deeper into that parable of the unforgiving servant with him next. If you enjoy our hymn studies, be sure to check out the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Praise and Honor, Hymn-Inspired Devotions. Praise and Honor contains a devotional for each stanza from hymns like God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, We Praise and Acknowledge You, O God, and more. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Praise and Honor, Hymn-Inspired Devotions. Lutheran Federal Credit Union is committed to serving you and to serving the church. Lutheran FCU serves you by offering mortgage and auto loans, checking and savings accounts, credit and debit cards. Lutheran FCU serves the church through its Ministry of the Month program. October's recipient, the National Lutheran Cross Country Championship. Learn more at LutheranFCU.org. Good for you, good for the church. Lutheran Federal Credit Union. LutheranFCU.org Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Mount Zion Lutheran Church in Greenfield, Wisconsin is a congregation of those gathered by the Spirit of the Lord around His saving word and sacraments. At the center of our life together is the divine service of the risen Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, who takes away the sin of the world. If you are in the Milwaukee area, we invite you to share with us in our Lord's gifts of forgiveness and new life. Services are on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. For more information, visit our website at mountziongreenfield.org.
Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary, the gospel reading, and the parable of the unforgiven servant in Matthew 18. Pastor Peterson, take us deeper into this parable itself. Well, the first thing we ought to notice is that he compares the kingdom of heaven to a king, that is to a person, not to a business or an animal or to the ocean or a tree or something, but to a human, a man. And in in Greek, this is one of the parables that really emphasizes this and clarifies it, because uh, it has the word man in there sort of unnecessarily. The ESV just leaves it out. It It just goes, the kingdom of heaven is like a man. But literally, it says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, a king. So it's, it's just a, a positive, you know, one thing after another. Gibbs says in his commentary that the noun man is likely functioning as an indefinite pronoun, and the King James and the New King James both translate it this way, which, as Gibbs does, so that they translate it a certain king. Well, I cannot find any examples of this usage anywhere else in the New Testament. I couldn't find any evidence of this in the grammars that I have or in the dictionaries. I mean, I'm no Greek scholar, and I'm not, so who knows? I mean, the King James and the New King James were not translated by dummies, so maybe there's some case for it, and at least the words are being dealt with and translated, which is good. I don't think the ESV should have just ignored it or skipped it, because the words of Jesus don't contain any meaningless or throwaway words. But if it was me and I was translating it, I would ignore Gibbs on this, and I would say the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a king, because I think I don't think it's an indefinite pronoun. I think that Jesus is emphasizing that the parable is about himself. That is to say that he is the man. He is King Messiah who has the authority to settle the accounts of his servants by forgiveness. Now, this is an allegory, of course, this isn't a historical account, that, but, but actually it's a story that Jesus is telling to show us himself, and it's got some exaggerated language in it in some sense, as we'll get to with the numbers, but that is, does not mean it's an abstraction. So money lenders, we should note right off the bat, don't want to settle accounts. So already we've got something different with this king. What money lenders want is to keep us in debt. They want us to be beholden to them. They want us to keep on paying interest. God, however, wants to actually elevate us. He's become one of us. He calls us his brothers and sons. He's come to set us free. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, a king. So one of these debt slaves owes this king an impossible amount, 10,000 talents. 
Now, we got another sort of cultural problem here. How much is a talent? Well, this word talent is a common denomination of money in the ancient world, but it means different things in different places. It's worse in some sense than the measurement cubit in terms of trying to figure out exactly what it is. At the high end, in Athens, it cost one talent to build a trireme. That is, the ships they were so successful with, you know, conquering the world with. And in modern terms, it's really... I mean, it's somewhat the equivalent of a battleship. Well, in the United States, under current dollars, it costs the taxpayers $100 million to build a single Iowa-class battleship. So think about that. If that's $100 million is one talent, this guy owes 10,000 talents, 10,000 times $100 million. If you try to find a kind of lower number for this so it doesn't seem so bad, you're not going to do very well. Gibbs provides this from the, uh, the big dictionary for uh, Greek to English, and they still come up with a figure at the very low end of $60 million. So it's at least $60 million. Maybe it's $10,000 billion. It's this outrageous amount. And the whole point of this is really that no human being could actually spend or waste that kind of money. This sort of corruption and waste can only be done by large governments and bureaucracies, right? So when he asks for patience, if he just has more time, he says he'll pay everything back. Well, there's no way. There's no way he could ever pay this back, even if he worked for 100 years and he gave 100% of his wages to the king. This is simply a debt that cannot be repaid. And that's the first thing to notice. It's not just he owes a lot of money. He owes an absolutely impossible. No one, no one can pay this money back. But, of course, it can be forgiven. The king has the authority to do it. He has the moral right to do it. It's his. He can give it away if he wants. And he has compassion. And that's an important word, as we've talked about on here before. I don't like the ESV's translation here either. Translating this as pity. The word is splagnizomai, and it's deeper than what I think the word in English, pity, conveys, that the king is actually moved by love, that he identifies with the debtor. Even though, I mean, this debtor, we ought to be a little suspicious. What is wrong with this clown that he got himself this badly in debt, right? Again, it's got to be wasteful, way worse than the prodigal son. And yet he suffers with this man, he empathizes with him, he loves him, and he wants to elevate this man to his peer. He doesn't want him to be a slave to debt. So this compassion, anyway, splagnizomai, is a particularly divine characteristic. It's an important theological word. It's only used in the Gospels to speak of a characteristic that belongs to the Messiah or to, to the Holy Trinity or to the Father. Jesus himself is the compassionate one, and his generosity is simply beyond imagination. It's, it's certainly beyond our intellect. And even this exaggerated language of the parable, in some sense, cannot fully capture the magnitude of God's mercy. 10,000 billion, that's how much he owes. And God becomes a man to take on this debt, suffering our punishment in our place to settle our accounts that we might be restored to fellowship with him and live with him forever. So it's a magnificent, magnanimous thing that, that the king does. He releases the man. He's no longer a slave to his debt. The man's free, and he also forgives him. We get both of those verbs, releases and forgives. He is, his guilt and his shame at having been so wasteful, at having accumulated such terrific debt, is removed. I mean, if that part was ridiculous, then look at the next part. 
look at how he acts. He finds a colleague who owes him money. So right away, we've got him looking for this guy, right? The guy doesn't just come stumbling upon him. He goes looking for him. He walks away from the king, having just saved his life and the life of his wife and his children, having spared him all of this embarrassment and shame and pain and death and the like, having gone from being a slave and owing an impossible debt to being a peer of the king, rich in every way, free, And the first thing he does is go looking for someone to oppress. He is like Adam in the garden or David on his rooftop. He has everything and he wants more, right? This is the problem with the love of money or with all of our sin and all of our lust. It never satisfies. It never delivers. There's never enough money. There's never enough women. There's never enough fame or whatever it is. And, of course, he thinks that he should have it by right. He goes there as though he is just, seeking justice. Now, in fairness, a hundred denarii is not an insignificant amount if we judge it in the ways of ourselves, in the ways of men. A denarii, a single denarii, is a day's wage. So a hundred denarii is three months' wages. So if you take your annual salary and you divide it by four, that's how much this guy is owed by his colleague. And if somebody owed you that much money you'd be concerned, but at the same time, it wouldn't be impossible for that person to pay it back. It's, it's, it's a significant amount of money, but it's not undoable. So it's pretty normal in the United States for people to borrow as much as 10 times that amount, two and a half times an annual income for a mortgage, for a house, and then to take 15 or 20 years and pay it back with interest. But they can pay it back in their lifetimes, and in fact, they can probably do that a couple of times in their life. So not impossible, but, but significant. However, as significant as it might be, it's only significant if you think about it in terms of what's reasonable among men. If you think of it in comparison to what the man was forgiven, you know, again, somewhere between 60 million and 10,000 billion, and this guy owes you $15,000, it's just absolutely nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And what this does of course, is it demonstrates what's actually in this man's heart, that he does not belong to this king. He's not a peer of the king. He's not a citizen. He's an interloper and a fraud. And thus, the king is filled with wrath at how his real sons and daughters are being treated. And this liar is handed over to his true father and country to the relief of the man that he had grabbed by the throat. He's like the guy that comes into the wedding banquet, but won't wear the wedding garment. He's not a true son. He's a hypocrite because he's not living in forgiveness. And that's evident because the forgiveness doesn't flow through him at all, even imperfectly. So when the king says that the man will not be released until he's paid all of his debt, remember, we're talking about this astronomical impossible amount. He means that he will never be released. This doesn't mean he can get out eventually. And then Jesus, of course, summarizes the parable and this whole point. The fate of that unmerciful servant, eternal punishment, will be the fate of everyone who will not forgive his brothers from their hearts. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, parable of the unforgiving servant. We'll find out what the Lutheran confessions have to say about the forgiveness that flows through us to others after this. you want to spend more time in God's Word, but your tight schedule doesn't permit you to sit down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? Join me, 
Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever. A daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. You can listen and study anytime, anywhere, on your commute, at the gym, or while doing housework. Learn more at thewordendures.org, thewordendures.org. Remember when education was about the fundamental skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic? and about reading great literature and studying history to give our kids a model for what it is to be a good person. Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum offers that very model for your homeschool. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. The church's music from the second century. The 6th century. The 12th century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacramental, historical, liturgical. You're listening to Issues, etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by joining the Issues Etc. 300. Gloria Day Lutheran, Escondido, California. Christ Our Savior Lutheran, Freeburg, Illinois. St. Peter Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Zion Lutheran, Dexter, Iowa. Epiphany Lutheran, Door, Michigan. St. Paul Lutheran, International Falls, Minnesota. Faith Lutheran, Azona, Texas. Messiah Lutheran, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Parkland Lutheran, Tacoma, Washington. Christ Lutheran, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Trinity Lutheran, Tryon, North Carolina, and Holy Cross Lutheran, Albany, Oregon. Find out how your church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click support, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation joins the Issues Etc. 300, we'll publicize your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. Here's a quote from 16th century reformer Martin Luther. Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song has given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. And that's exactly what is done in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Praise and Honor, Hymn-Inspired Devotions. 
It is a devotional resource based upon the stanzas of 14 of your favorite hymns. You can find out more about Praise and Honor at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, 1-800-325-3040. You wanted to direct us to the Lutheran Confessions, Pastor Peterson, where in the large catechism, Luther understands our forgiveness of one another as a sign of sorts that we are Christians. This is the way Luther speaks of the fifth petition in the large catechism. He says, there is attached to this petition a necessary and even comforting addition as we forgive our debtors. He has promised us assurance that everything is forgiven and pardoned, yet on the condition that we also forgive our neighbor. For just as we sin greatly against God every day, and yet he forgives it all through grace— So we also must always forgive our neighbor who does us harm, violence and injustice, bears malice toward us, etc. If you do not forgive, do not think that God forgives you. But if you forgive, you have the comfort and assurance that you are forgiven in heaven, not on account of your forgiving, for he does it altogether free out of pure grace, because he has promised it, as the gospel teaches, but instead because he has set this up for our strengthening and assurance as a sign, along with the promise that matches this petition in Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Therefore, Christ repeats it immediately after the Lord's Prayer, saying in Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So, The point that Luther's making is he's saying, look, to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, to be a brother of Jesus Christ, is to be so marked and formed and defined by his extravagant forgiveness that it will flow out of you. That's how it's a sign. Now, there's undoubtedly, there's somebody hearing this who's saying, well, forgiveness doesn't flow out of me very well. I am very prone to holding grudges. I've held them for years. I'm prideful. I'm self-righteous. And I find myself fantasizing about my enemies, you know, coming to their comeuppance and being punished and so forth. And this is terrible. And I'm afraid that this means I'm not forgiving and therefore Jesus won't forgive me. And what kind of a God is he? Well, listen, if, if these are the sorts of thoughts you're having, this is actually a sign that you're a Christian and this is good. If it doesn't bother you, I mean, if you hear these words of Jesus and you go, oh, great, I got this down, I'm a perfect forgiver, then you're an unbeliever, right? If it doesn't bother you, repent, because you think that you do not need to forgive others because you're so good at it there's something wrong with you, right? You're no Christian. And in fact, you don't value or truly believe in Christ's forgiveness. But of course, I expect that everyone listening to this is in fact somewhat bothered, right? That we all find this hard. It's hard to forgive those who sin against us. And we all harbor some doubt, some fear because of this statement of Jesus. It's so stern. If you don't forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven. Well, this bothers us because of faith. This bothers us because, in fact, we want to exemplify this. We want to live according to it. We love the forgiveness of Christ. We know it's good. We want to be defined by it, and we're bothered because we don't fully live up to it. Well, we don't fully live up to it. I don't mean this as an excuse. It's just the reality. We don't fully live up to it because we are still infected with original sin, and we still need forgiveness. So since we're not yet without sin— We're living in this forgiveness, right? 
We are forgiven, but we're not yet without sin. The good work begun in us has not yet been complete. So we are striving to forgive. In cooperation with the Holy Spirit, we decide to forgive. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. I want to be like Jesus. So we try to let go. We try to stop obsessing and daydreaming about vengeance and making passive-aggressive remarks and spying people on Facebook and whatever else we do, right? What we do is we set into God's hands our inability to forgive and our anger, not only because vengeance is his and all sins are ultimately committed against him, but also because we believe that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, even for the sins of our enemies, those who hurt us. And in fact, God wants to forgive all sinners. He really does. And therefore, we want what he wants. We want to be part of that. We want him to forgive people. We want people to repent and turn to him and believe because we love what he loves and we trust what he says. So the old man in you, that part of you that doesn't want to forgive, that wants to hold to the grudges, that part is drowned by daily repentance and contrition. And a new man who loves nothing so much as the grace of God in Christ Jesus that forgives sins rises and emerges to live before God in forgiveness, both passive and active, right? Living in forgiveness is being forgiven, primarily being forgiven, and also forgiving others, bestowing that forgiveness as uh, Christ-like followers of Christ. And this is the life of faith on this side of glory. And it's really, you could pick your virtue in some sense, love, whatever it is, but forgiveness in some sense is the most essential because the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And this is a struggle against the flesh, the life of faith, a hope in things that are not seen. I don't see in myself a perfect forgiver as God forgives, but I believe that his word is true and that I am forgiven and I am waiting for the time when this will be complete and I will be able to see it on the last day. So we're waiting on God. We're trusting in him. Our struggle to forgive one another, to live like Christ, is in this sense then a sign that his word is true, right? We are living it out. We can feel it. We can see it in, in some sense in ourselves imperfectly. And this sign demonstrates to us that our sins are forgiven because Jesus is the one that taught us to pray for this and who says that if we forgive one another, we are in fact his people. So Luther saying it's a sign, I think is absolutely brilliant and, and perfectly correct. How is the not seven, but 70 times seven, this, there's no stopping this. How is that sometimes misapplied? Well, what can happen is we can get to this kind of ridiculous over... Uh, how would I say, overstatement of it or this idea that there's no sort of qualifications and the like. What Jesus means here is that we are forgiven and that we are marked by forgiveness and that his generosity, which we are to extend one to one another, has no bounds. That's what he means. This is who we are and what the church does. And he's giving us, again, an overarching principle. He is defining his kingdom and our faith and our place in it. He's defining himself. At the same time, he's not getting into the exact ethics of it, and there are ethics of it. So again, it's similar to these other statements about not judging, not swearing, calling no man father, even though, in fact, there is a place and a time when we must judge, when we must take oaths, when we must call men father. There are times as well when, in fact, we should not forgive. 
when we should retain sins, namely when people are impenitent, right? Ministers of the gospel are not to absolve the impenitent. They're not. They shouldn't. If they do, they make a mockery of it. The person's not forgiven. And in fact, the minister, if he does this knowingly, is blaspheming and is mocking the gospel, and that's horrible and wrong. So, There are, however, also, besides just not forgiving the impenitent, there are also nuances of forgiveness that aren't spoken here, but which Christian families and people really have to figure out largely for themselves. So Jesus is not advocating that if you steal a bicycle and you are forgiven, that you then shouldn't return it, you get to keep it as though nothing happened. That's not what he's advocating. He's not advocating that repentant, repeat offenders shouldn't be offered any help dealing with their addictions and weaknesses beyond the absolution because that would be legalism. That's not what he means. In fact, these things don't just go away because of the absolution, but in fact, they have consequences, we have memories of them, and we have to deal with these sorts of things. So, We could go on and on. He doesn't mean that children shouldn't be disciplined because you forgive them, right? You can forgive your child, but you can still ground him or make him pay for the window he broke or whatever. He certainly doesn't mean something as ridiculous as convicted yet repentant child molesters who have received the absolution should be treated as though nothing ever happened and given a Sunday school class. Right? So all of this to just say that the call to forgive without bounds does not mean that we forgive without memory. There are consequences for sin on this side of glory. There are godly punishments and disciplines and boundaries for the absolved that we have been given or that we must find according to the wisdom that we have. So it can be misapplied when that sort of stuff is thrown out the window and we act as though this is a statement uh, that is somehow axiomatic and has no nuance rather than taking it in the context of the entirety of Holy Scripture. Now, even despite all that, though, in the midst of all of this, none of that means that the forgiveness is ineffective or isn't real, doesn't cause a change of heart, or that God is actually holding our sins against us. Again, the principle that Jesus lays down is not that we are a people who must be accountable for our sins and pay for them ourselves. Rather, what he lays down is that we are those who live in and by forgiveness, that forgiveness is the standard of our community in a sense. And our principles, in the same way, that we don't judge by our own standards or because we think that we're better than others, that we don't take oaths to try to impress men or convince them of our sincerity, or that our true Father is God. These are likewise principles. And yet, again, at the same time, there are times and places where, in fact, we are called upon to judge, we are called upon to take oaths, we are even called upon to call men Father for the sake of our neighbors and for making a good confession in this world. So, this principle, too, that we forgive as we are forgiven, recognizes at the same time that life with sinners is complicated, and sometimes, for the sake of our neighbors and our witness in the wor- this world, sometimes for the good of the absolved person and for our own good, there are consequences for sin in this world even after it has been forgiven. Then let's look at the intro, which is Psalm 130. Uh, We're going to get for the antiphon, verses 3 and 4, starting the middle. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Then we'll go into the body, verses 1 and 2, and then 7 and 8. 
Out of the depths have I cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my supplications. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 is a very short psalm. There's only one more verse. It's verse 5 right in the middle. I don't know why it gets skipped, but I'll read it to you. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Now, if we read this psalm in order, verses 1 through 8 straight, it would move in this way. It would very quickly move or begin with something very close to despair in verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, hear me, and then move to confidence. Hear my prayer, God, because you do not mark iniquities. Now, this just happens to be, and maybe Luther has it in mind, exactly the way that Luther moves in the small catechism on the fifth petition. So I read you a little bit of the large catechism. Now here's the small. We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. So it's remarkable how parallel that is to 130. The whole reason that we are able to call upon God as our Father and ask him to do anything, so to sanctify his name, let us hear his word and believe it, to protect us from sin, to give us daily bread, to protect us from temptation, to deliver us from Satan, all of the Lord's Prayer, the only reason we can ask any of these things is because the Lord does not mark iniquities. We are not worthy of that for which we pray. We daily sin much, but we ask for what he tells us to ask for by grace because we are forgiven. So it's exactly the way the psalm, right? Hear me because you do not mark iniquities. And then the psalm moves to its probably most powerful statement, the heart of the psalm. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And that's the antiphon. So we're going to hear it out of order, but that's going to give it emphasis. And we're going to hear it twice. We'll have it at the beginning. Then we'll have the body of the psalm, the Gloria Patri. Then we get the antiphon again. There is forgiveness with you, O Lord, that you mayest be feared. The real reason that we revere God and fear his wrath is found in his power and will to forgive. So we can understand, and maybe we can even outsmart a God like Zeus, right? Because Zeus makes sense to us. He thinks like us, he acts like us, right? I mean, in the mythologies, of course, not in the reality. But the God of Israel was not created by human beings as a myth, and he's not like us. Uh, Zeus marks iniquities because Zeus is like us, but the God of Israel does not. The God of Israel sends his son to die for his enemy. He forgives impossible, ridiculous, shameful debts. This power doesn't make any sense. It does not operate in any way that we can understand. And this ought to fill human beings with awe. There is something amazing and wonderful and fearful in this. Here is the real power of the God of Israel. He forgives sins. He has the authority to do it. He has the will to do it. And he has the power to do it, which is a power beyond any power of human beings or any other power in creation. There's a sense in which his mercy is scarier even than the threats of Satan, because it's more fantastic. But... 
as the psalmist goes on, with him there is mercy. Again, he does not mark iniquities. So hope in him, rest in him, pray to him. With him is abundant redemption. He redeems those who wrestle with him. Israel means to wrestle with God, right? So we're living in that wrestling, that striving as people who are forgiven, who then reach out with forgiveness, people marked by it, it wrestling, the intro, it's really then, it's a marvelous and brilliant light for this particular gospel, and I think it does a great job of establishing the theme of the day. Remember, the intro will be the first proper that we'll hear on Sunday morning. We'll see if the theme of the day is reflected in the collect for this coming Sunday as we look forward to Sunday morning with Pastor David Peterson, Departmental Editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc., Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor in 2020. You're invited to an open house Sunday afternoon, November the 17th, at the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis, St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. The open house includes a presentation by Jocelyn Benson of Wittenberg Academy titled, Why Settle for Good Enough? You'll also have an opportunity to visit the school and meet our teachers. Find out if St. Paul Lutheran School is the right place for your family. Join us for an open house Sunday afternoon at 1, November the 17th at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. What is the Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's a monthly magazine on faith and life, theology and culture that helps readers interpret the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Filled with expert insights, good writing, and inspiring stories, it also provides essential church information for LCMS members. What is the Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's the flagship periodical of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and it has been for more than a century. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, November the 12th, we're looking forward to Sunday morning, going through the propers for the gospel reading in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Pastor Peterson, you said before the break that the intro gives us this theme that we find at the very beginning of the service that's reflected in all these readings about the forgiveness of sins. Is that reflected in the collect for the day? Yeah, and this is kind of a weird colic for that purpose, or for this for its lack of that purpose. O God, our refuge and strength, the author of all godliness, hear the devout prayers of your church, especially in times of persecution, and grant that what we ask in faith we may obtain through Jesus Christ, your Son. So, I mean, this is fine collect. It's very kind of generic in a sense. It asks for the sorts of things we ought to ask for, to be sure. It confesses rightly who God is says that he is our refuge and strength, the author of all godliness, who answers, who hears and answers our prayers. So it, it doesn't seem to have a, a real strong, obvious connection to the whole idea of forgiveness and being people marked and living in forgiveness. If there's a connection, 
I think that it's probably in the description as of God as the author of all godliness. Now, godliness might call to mind for us many virtues, but in light of today's gospel, it's certainly primarily forgiveness. The mercy of the Lord endures forever, so God forgives. And as the forgiver, he then writes forgiveness into those whom he forgives. He's the author of all godliness. He's the author of forgiveness. By forgiving us, he makes us to be like him. That is to be godly, which is to be forgiving. Micah 6, 6, and 8, the probably the most famous verses from the Old Testament prophet there, is the Old Testament reading. Right. We get, uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So this is the chapter 6. I would guess Micah 5 would be the most famous passage. That's where Bethlehem's named as a place from which will come the true ruler of Israel, the Ancient of Days, who will shepherd his people and be their peace. Here in chapter 6 now, in kind of response to that, right, that this one who comes out of Bethlehem with peace is going to be expanded. And the point here is that this peace of the Messiah is not going to come about by the merit of keeping the law in an outward way. Explicitly, a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, like 10,000 talents, will not be enough to cover our sins or enable us to come before God and not be destroyed. So we've got, again, this would be an outrageous uh, amount of debt. 10,000 rivers of oil. How much oil is that? That's not enough to pay for your sins. They can't be paid for by, in any kind of human way. It requires God to become a man and make a sacrifice worthy for your sins. So even if we sacrificed our firstborn, it wouldn't be enough. But God has told us how to come before him. God has told us what he requires. He requires faith. And we come before him in boldness and confidence in the peace of the Messiah by the sacrifice of the Messiah, which lives in us. And this forgiveness, this justice and kindness, which is poured into us from his generosity, again, flows out of us and onto our neighbors. The Gradual from Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, for the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Here is a mark of the church. Forgiveness enables us to dwell together in unity. And where there is forgiveness of sins, God has commanded his blessing, and he gives unity as a gift. Now, this is really important because there is a temptation in us to try and create unity artificially. That is to simply claim it when it isn't real. But in fact, unity in the church is not something that we can create. Unity is a gift from God which he gives in his word. It is God who unites us to himself in his forgiveness. And what disunites us is sin. There's, and it can be any sin, a refusal to forgive will disunite us because you can't live with other people if you can't forgive them. You're, you're no, you have no unity. You're holding their sins against them. So also, an insistence on false doctrine will disunite us. And there's much more 
of that, much more disunity on this side of glory because of sin, because of false doctrine and insistence on one's own way and the like. And yet, at the same time, and we've experienced this, God does by his grace enable imperfect fallen human beings to love one another, to forgive one another, to set aside their own personal agendas and seeking of glory for themselves for the sake of one another. We, we do know something of this. We have experienced this, and we do have these sorts of promises in the Scripture. It is good and it is pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. The Lord has commanded this blessing. And, of course, we are actually to seek out such people. We're not supposed to create false unity. We're not supposed to just say, oh, we'll, we'll just agree to disagree. That's not unity. That's a human lie. Instead, we're actually to seek out people that we are united with, like-minded Christians who believe what we believe, and then we are to dwell with them, submitting to one another in reverence and so forth. We can't fake that by ignoring problems, but we can enjoy it where God gives it, and we should. And of course, Issues Etc. serves this particular purpose of seeking one another out in a very admirable way, because Issues not only catechizes and confesses, Issues also attracts and identifies. It helps us to find one another in this dark place. So when I meet someone who says, oh, I listen to issues, etc., I know right away that I've found a brother. And when I visit a church that's one of these Reformation 300, I know I'm going to be at home. I mean, this is actually a a marvelous service that you provide. You should put it on your—that'll be a new slogan for you, Todd. We identify and attract— The epistle reading is from uh, the very first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. How does it fit in? Uh, We read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the ideal here of Christian brotherhood is obvious, right? Paul is thanking God as he remembers the Philippians. He's praying for them with joy. He loves them. Now, the word that's translated here as partnership is the word in Greek koinonia, And it could be translated as fellowship, which would be better than partnership, but I'd even go one step further. I would translate this as communion. He is rejoicing in the communion in the gospel that he has with the Philippians, and this, to be sure, has Eucharistic overtones. They are united by their common faith and the teaching in the gospel, and so they have the privilege and the joy of receiving Holy Communion together, which is an expression of this unity. Now, of course, they aren't perfect. They're human beings like us, and the good work in them that was begun in holy baptism by the Lord is still being worked out. It's still being brought to completion and perfection through time by word and by sacrament, that is, by forgiveness. But it will be brought to perfection on the last day, and then there will be no more need for forgiveness. But already now, here in this life, Paul loves them, he has unity with them, and even as he's yearning for the perfect union to come. 
I don't like the way this translation of this word partakers, because that's again this word koinonia with a prefix that means together. And I would translate, they are fellow communicants in grace. So again, the way that he speaks of them has this Eucharistic reality behind it. The blood of Christ, which confesses this unity, transcends Paul's prison bars, and of course their unity is eternal. So even, I mean, he's only in prison for however long, and then he's going to be translated to heaven. They're only on earth for however long, and then they're going to be translated to heaven, and now they're together and unified forever. So then Paul finally states that he's praying that while they await the final day, they would grow in faith and in good works to the glory and praise of God. With about a minute here, Pastor Peterson, the hymn of the day, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall. This is a marvelous kind of very clear law gospel hymn. It's a great Reformation hymn. The first half very clearly confesses the problem with original sin. All mankind falls in Adam's falls, infected. It does not love God. Does not, we do not have God's image. And then in the second half of the hymn, we get a marvelous confession of the universal atonement as the solution or the answer to original sin. Christ's the second Adam who came into our sin to bear our burdens and punishment. He's our life, light, and way. And uh, by grace, he brings us to himself in heaven. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Always a pleasure. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll discuss parenting an autistic child with Joanna Hensley. There's absolutely no hope for us if God does not continue to extend to us and through us this forgiveness, won for us by Jesus Christ in his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. That forgiveness is what assures us of eternal life and continues to extend forgiveness to our neighbors. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.